following sermon was preached on October 3rd, 2021 at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. Dr. Joseph A. Piper Jr. preached this sermon entitled The Blessings of the Sabbath on Isaiah 58, verses 13 and 14. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, you children and boys and girls know that in your families you have special days, right? It might be a birthday. Maybe Thanksgiving's a special holiday for you. And surely most of us enjoy, as families, having Christmas. So we all have these days that, um, that we look forward to with keen delight and anticipation. So in your list of really great days that you look forward to, where falls the weekly Sabbath? You look upon the weekly Sabbath in the same way, with the same delight that you would look upon anniversaries or birthdays or special traditional family days. Or does it fall somewhere lower in the list? And if you don't delight in the Sabbath greatly, why is that? Why is it not, in fact, the most special day of days in your affections and in your experience? Because unfortunately, many of us do not think much on the pleasures and delights of the Sabbath, and it is not to us considered a day of delight. And so I want to address your attention this morning, to address you with this wonderful promise in Isaiah chapter 58, verses 13 and 14. Reminds you of the larger picture. Isaiah's book is in two sections, written by one author. Now, the first half deals with judgment, grace, judgment, grace, judgment on the church, the northern church, the southern church, judgment on Assyria, judgment on Babylon with continued hope of delivery. But the second section begins with that remarkable proclamation, comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. It's a very complex and complicated section in the book of Isaiah. You have to read it recognizing that it is anticipating not only the conquest by Babylon, but the restore from the captivity of Babylon. That's why it begins the way it does. This announcement of comfort that their sins have been atoned for, and God is bringing them back. But then to add to the complication is the fact that this restoration uh, from captivity in Babylon has been appointed by God to be a picture of the salvation and redemption of the church in the new covenant. And woven through that, then, is this remarkable declaration about the servant of Jehovah, the Lord Jesus Christ, it comes to its climax in chapter 52, uh, verse uh, 13 through 53, verse 12. And from that point forward, most of what we have in Isaiah is all about us. It's all about the new covenant church. Yes, there'll be references to the sin of the people as, as God continues to call them to repentance before captivity. But chapter 54 talks about the church now bringing in the nations. Chapter 55, the great gospel call, come, you have no money, come by and drink. Chapter 56 then relates the Sabbath to the new covenant church because it talks in terms there of eunuchs participating in the life of the temple, which were forbidden in the old covenant. 
And after some more uh, rebuke in chapter 57, we come to this chapter 58, where God is dealing both with them and us with respect to our religious formalism. Speaking to the church before captivity, they cry out, God, why are you deserting us? Why aren't you listening to us? Look, we're fasting. We're seeking your face. And he rebukes them. He says, all you're doing is going through the motions. When he says he doesn't care about humiliation and, and those things, he's talking relatively. He's saying that if you really were seeking me, you also would be loving your neighbor according to the second table of the law. And you're not doing that. And so he challenges them to seek him from the heart and let that be manifested in their love for the neighbor. He says if they do that, if they forsake their formalism, then he will indeed cause his light to shine in their darkness. He will guide them. He will raise up the church. Now, it just kind of hangs there. He introduces this conditional promise with respect to the Sabbath. Why? Because the Sabbath is the great antidote. It's the medicine, boys and girls, to keep us from becoming cold and, and formalistic in our worship to God. And so he sets the Sabbath before us here as a means of beauty and blessing and grace in the life of his children. So what I want to do is show you that God attaches great promises of grace to the careful obedience of the Christian Sabbath. God attaches great promises of grace to the careful obedience of the Christian Sabbath. And we're going to consider really those two things. God appoints the Sabbath as a means of grace, and God uh, uh, appoints the observance of the Sabbath as the condition to receiving those means. Now, I'm going to reverse the order. We're going to look at verse 14 first. You've heard about leading the horse with a carrot. I want to start with the positive here. I want you to see exactly what it is that God is promising. That God, He's appointed these great blessings in connection with the Sabbath. It makes it a great means of grace. And so in verse 14, he says... Then you will take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth, and I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now look carefully here. There are not three greater things promised to you in all of the Bible than these three things. First is, he said, you will take delight in the Lord. That means to find exquisite pleasure in him. To be our chief delight in Job chapter 22, when Eliphaz makes this promise uh, to, to Job, uh, it's a good promise. It just doesn't apply because Job was not wallowing in sin. But it's true that um, if you remove unrighteousness from your tent, place your gold in the dust and the gold of Ophir among the stones of the brooks, then the Almighty will be your gold, a choice silver to you, for then you will delight in the Almighty and lift your face up to God. And you see the comparison there. The delight in God exceeds that of all silver and gold and, and precious things. You boys and girls have things that you really care about. When my son was the age of some of you, you knew what was important to him because it was always under his pillow at night. That was his precious possession. That was the thing in which he took great delight. And all of us have those things. Maybe it's a family heirloom or a present from a spouse or a 
a special card from our children, but there, there are those things in which we take great delight. That's the image here. Now, we know that we're to love God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We also know we want to do that, right? But then we must quickly confess that none of us love him as we ought. We want to love him more. And that's the promise here, connected with the Sabbath, that we will grow in our delight in God. That's very logical. The Sabbath is all about God. It sets him forth as creator and the great God of providence. It sets him forth as redeemer, the God of our salvation. It sets him forth as the very spiritual life of his church. You see, the triune God is placarded before us in this day that he has set aside. And if we will focus on him in this day and seek him, we're going to grow in love with him. A man and woman cannot grow together in love in their marriage if they don't spend time together. How can we expect to grow in our love for God if we neglect this day that he's appointed for special spiritual trysting? And so we increase our delight in him. Second, we get spiritual victory. He says that he's going to cause us to ride on the heights of the earth. Now, remember the play we have here that he's anticipating return from captivity. And so he uses language of the first entrance into the land about victory from Deuteronomy, chapters 32 and 33. Chapter 32, the Lord alone guided him and there was no foreign guy with him. He made him ride on the high places of the earth. The end of chapter 33 in the Song of Moses. Israel dwells in security, the fountain of Jacob secluded in a land of grain and new wine. His heavens also drop down new dew. Blessed are you, O Israel, who is like you, a people saved by the Lord, who is the shield of your help and the sword of your majesty, so your enemies will cringe before you, you will tread upon their high places. So that was the promise entering the land. Now as they're coming back to the land, God's promising this victory. You see, this is for us. And this victory is ours in the Sabbath. Because he who is in you is more powerful than he who is in the world. And we see here that God has appointed the Sabbath as a means of great spiritual strength and victory. In other words, it's a means of grace. It's a God-appointed means to help us die to sin and grow in conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ. One of the reasons today that so often we are weak in our walk with the Lord is our neglect of the Sabbath. One of the reasons today the church is so weak is because of her profanation of the Sabbath. It's a means of spiritual strength and victory. You want that, don't you? The third thing promised, then, is what I'm going to call a, a personal, experiential enjoyment of who and what we are in Christ. And that's a, a long clause, but a, a, a personal, experiential enjoyment of who and what we are in Christ. We have an inheritance. And so he says that you're going to feed upon the inheritance of Jacob, uh, your father. So again, he's going back. Psalm 105 mentions to us that the land was the physical inheritance. But even in the Old Covenant, we learn from Hebrews chapter 11, that lamb is but a picture or type of the heavenly inheritance. God's going to bring them back to their earthly inheritance from Babylon. But that's a picture to us 
of the glorious inheritance that is ours in Christ Jesus, which is found in our effectual calling, our justification, our adoption, our sanctification, and our growth in grace. And what does it mean to feed on the inheritance? Those things are yours. How do you feed on them? Well, I believe Short of Catechism 36 teaches us what we do. The question is, um, what benefits accompany and flow from justification, adoption, and sanctification? The benefits which accompany and flow from those three things are assurance of salvation, peace of conscience, joy in the Holy Ghost, perseverance in grace, increase in grace and perseverance therein. That's what it means to feed on your inheritance, to know who you are in Christ, to know that because I'm justified, God has pardoned my sins. Because the Spirit is in me, I have this assurance of salvation. Because the Spirit is in me, I have this great joy in the Lord, and I have a confidence that I'm going to grow in grace and in sanctification. And then there's a signature. After the three things promised, he says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. In Isaiah, this phrase is used to establish the surety of what God promises. The first time it's used is in Isaiah chapter 1, when the, there's the promise of remission of sins, though your sins are as scarlet and be as white as snow, and he says, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. God says, I stand behind this. I place my seal on these promises. Now today, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And one of the things that God does for us at the Lord's table is he's saying the mouth of Jehovah has spoken. He seals to us his promises. He says, I stand behind everything that I have sworn to you in Christ Jesus. Now, surely you would agree with me. There are not three greater things promised to us as Christians than increased love for God, spiritual strength and victory, and a real joy of who and what we are in Christ Jesus. So God has appointed great blessings. He's made the Sabbath a means of grace. Which leads us then to the second point, which is the 13th verse, and that is God has appointed the careful observance of the Sabbath as the means of those grace. Notice the construction of the two verses. Verse 13 begins, if. If because. And verse 14, then you would take delight. Now again, you boys and girls know that your parents give you two types of promises. Some promises are unconditional, regardless. Even of how bad you are, your parents say, I love you and I will never stop loving you and I'm not going to forsake you. I'm not going to leave you. But other promises are conditional promises. So let's say your daddy says, I tell you what, tomorrow that if you clean up your room the way your mother likes it, then I will take you out in the afternoon and buy you some ice cream. Now that's, that's a good promise. So it's Saturday morning, you've done your other chores, and now you go into your bedroom and you start cleaning your room. But I know what happens when I try to clean my room. I find a book that I want to look at or a video I want to see or I start playing with this thing or that thing. I forget what I'm doing. But you don't forget the promise. So it gets close to 2 o'clock and you go get Dad. and says, Dad, it's almost 2 o'clock. Let's go get ice cream. Dad says, well, let's go look at your room. Uh-oh. 
He comes and the room isn't clean. And he says, we're not going to get ice cream. And I can hear you, but daddy, you promised. Right? That's what you're going to say. No, I promised if you do something, I will do that. That's a conditional promise. Life's full of them. God has absolute promises to us. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. I am your God. You are my people. I pardon your sins. But the Bible also has conditional promises like this one, if-then promises. So if you really want these great blessings that God has attached to his Sabbath, then pay attention to the conditions. If because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and honor it desisting from your own ways, from seeking your own pleasure and speaking your own word, then you will take delight in the Lord. He first calls us to a... uh, an observance of his day. He does so both negatively and positively. Negatively, he gives us this commandment that he says, if because of the Sabbath you turn your foot from doing your own pleasure on my holy day. Now, when it refers to the day as a holy day, I want you to recognize that he's speaking here in light of what we had for our meditation in Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. In the same way that this verse is repeated in the second commandment. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. So here Moses tells us that on the seventh day of creation, God had finished all the work of creation, And he rested. Now, the word rested is the same Hebrew word from which we get the word Sabbath. You could say that on the seventh day, God kept Sabbath. And in God's Sabbath keeping, he did a number of things, three in particular. In the first place, he declared his work was finished. It was absolutely complete. Nothing could be added to what God had done as creator. Second, by his rest on the Sabbath, by his Sabbath keeping, he declared he took great pleasure in this day. In Exodus 31, when this is repeated, uh, we see that uh, verse 17, the Sabbath assigned between me and the sons of Israel, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. On the seventh day, he ceased from work and was refreshed. Now, the word refreshed comes from the word soul. In other words, he took inward pleasure. He didn't need physical rest, we know that. So what was this refreshment that God was taking? It was all very good, he says. He stood back, so to speak, and he looked at this creation, and he said, oh, it's wonderful, and I delight in it. Much in the same way, you, you finish a project, you cooked a really nice cake, or you built something in the garage, or you did a really nice job on a school paper, and you just, man, yeah, it's good. It's good. It's what God's doing here. He's taking pleasure in his creation. And then the third thing he's doing is making a promise to us. And that's one of the reasons that this remains open-ended, doesn't end the way the other days do, because God is promising here, the Sabbath is the promise that his image bearers may enter into his rest forever. And that was lost in Adam, but restored for us through the covenant of grace in the Lord Jesus Christ.
Now, in God's keeping Sabbath, we really see what the Sabbath's all about. It is to, um, the first, recognize that God's completed not just creation, but redemption. It's all finished. But secondly, it's all very good. Everything is complete and perfect. And we, through Christ, enter into our eternal rest. So then, as God keeps Sabbath, he does, and, and we often conflate the two. He does two things to the day, not one. Notice he blessed the day, and he sanctified the day. Now you understand what it means if God blesses a person, but how does God bless a thing? Well, the answer to that is found in the structure of Genesis chapter 1. When God blessed anything in the creation, he was giving it purpose, but also building into it the ability to fulfill that purpose. So he blessed the fishes of the sea and told them to uh, multiply and to spread. And one of the ways that we see that today is in what we call instinct. Why a baby bird will fly thousands of miles to a place it's never been before. Because God blessed his creation. He built in these things into them to fulfill the purpose that he gave them. So what he's saying here is that God gave this day a purpose. We've been talking about that purpose, haven't we? In, in uh, Isaiah chapter 58. And has instilled the day by his appointment to be the means to those ends. You see that? And so, when our Savior says the Sabbath is made for man and not man for the Sabbath, I think he has this in mind. It was made for us, not to cause us to complain or to wish that we could do other things, but to free us to enjoy these great promises and privileges. Then he sanctifies the day. Now, in the books of Moses, when God sanctifies something, invariably, he separated it from everyday common use to the special purposes of worship. Oil, incense, people, priests, garments, days, and the Sabbath day. God is saying this day, this day has been set aside. That's why in the fourth commandment, it's called the Sabbath of the Lord. It's his, not ours. You need, to, uh, you need to understand this. Of course, the question might come to mind, and if not to your mind, others are going to ask you the question, well, if God sanctified the seventh day, why are you worshiping on the first day of the week? It's quite clear, uh, as our confession spells out, that from creation to the resurrection, the church worshiped on the seventh day, looking and celebrating creation, but anticipating the greater work of redemption. But Christ was raised on the first day of the week. And the Bible clearly intimates that the Sabbath was changed in from the seventh day to the first day. And so everything that's said about the Sabbath, in terms of its moral principles, being a special day of the Lord, has been transferred by the appointment of Christ through the apostles to the first day of the week. It's God's special day. That's why he warns us he says, don't profane the day. Turn your foot away from doing your pleasure on my holy day. You see, it's his. And if you turn, if you profane it, you're stealing from him. Now, let me put it this way. Do any of you think that you have the privilege to walk into a stranger's house, your neighbor, not a family member, 
and just do whatever you want to do. Take what you want to take, take out of the fridge what you want to take, take some dishes home or whatever. You wouldn't do that, I hope, would you? No, that's your neighbor's. You have no right to it. And what we're being told here is the Sabbath is God's holy day, and you have no right to it. And the way you walk into his house and steal from him is by doing your own pleasure. Now, this word pleasure is the word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes, a very famous chapter 3, that there's a time for every event under the sun. That is this word uh, pleasure in verse 1 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And then in chapter 8, he uses it again and talks about delight. In verse 6 of chapter 8, there is a proper time and procedure for every delight, though a man's trouble is heavy upon him. And so this word pleasure is the, simply the things of our lives. Uh, they are the events of our lives. They're the things in which we take delight. It's just his way of saying it's God's day to be used in God's way and not your day to be used in your way. Don't profane it. You must honor it negatively. And then he puts it positively in the second part. But rather, call the Sabbath a delight the holy day of the Lord. Notice he anticipates the language of the New Testament. It's the, it's the Lord's day. The holy day of the Lord honorable. Call it a delight. Just the opposite of what we do so often. We get up, oh no, it's the Sabbath. I don't know who won the late ball game last night. Or I can't do this. Or I, I can't do that. And we grumble and complain. You kids, you resent it sometimes because you you want to do everything you've done the other six days of the week. But he says, call it a delight. This is the same word that he uses in verse 14. Then you will delight in the Lord. You see, if you want to delight in the Lord, you delight in the Lord's day. You find it full of pleasure. Because it's full of him. And you honor it. You honor the Lord's day by keeping it according to his word. You honor it by granting to it the proper reverence that belongs to it as something that's been set aside by God for his own purposes. And so you call it a delight, the holy day of the Lord, honorable. And then he becomes very particular. As he speaks of this condition, he shows us the three ways in which he would have us honor this day. The second half of verse 13. Honor it. By desisting from your own ways, seeking your own pleasure, speaking your own word. First, you honor it by turning away from your callings and your vocations. Desisting from your own ways, the ways of life. This is basically unpacking what God has commanded in the fourth commandment. There he uses two words, not to do your work or your labor, one word has to do with manual labor, and, and on the other festivals sometimes you couldn't do manual labor, you could do other types of work. But here he takes both terms together there in the fourth commandment to show us that no type of regular work is to be done on the Sabbath outside of those deeds of necessity, which are quite clear uh, in our callings and in Scripture of how we should serve God in that manner. Not only are we not to work, we're not to cause others to work, as the fourth commandment is very clear. 
that we don't cause our, our servants and others, and our servants are those that serve us in the community. It's not a day for going out to a restaurant for recreational eating. It's not a day for sitting aside and getting to the shop uh, to buy something you forgot, or maybe the crowds won't be as bad, or a day to catch up on some work. And even at home, it's a day that family needs to pick in to be sure that mom has less work to do on this day. And much is done the day before so that it, there is less work to be done on that day. It's not our day for work. Second, it's not a day for recreation. That's what he means when he says that it is not for seeking your own pleasure. This is that same word that we have above. Not the things in which you delight. And this has been understood throughout history as a recreation. It's not a day for our pleasures and recreations. It does not belong to us. It belongs to God. It's very important that we help our children with this in a couple of ways. One is we need to create a day for them that is enjoyable. And so particularly when they're younger, that means we're going to have less pleasures in the Sabbath, so to speak, because we're going to have to devote ourselves to helping them keep the Sabbath. One thing, and, and I, I don't understand it, uh, but amongst many in our community that uh, have a commitment to Sabbath keeping, it seems that their kids do very little different on the Lord's Day than other days of the week. Or they might stay at home, but there seems to be the same outdoor activity. And I think that's forbidden. Now, we have to have things for them to get rid of steam, but it needs to be under that end. Everything that we do with our children needs to be to the purposes of the Sabbath. So if we wrestle with them or throw the ball a little bit or whatever, it's to help them get rid of energy so we can help them keep the Sabbath. And we've got to change on this, I believe. Second, we're going to have to learn to take stands. I don't know that any of you are not doing that, but it used to be the things that are very profitable for our children, their sports activities and things like that, were never on the Lord's Day. In fact, when my kids played ball, and I've coached and managed both softball and Little League, there was never a practice on Wednesday afternoon because of prayer meeting, and there was never anything on the Lord's Day. In fact, in the Little League rules, it was against the rules. And that's not true any longer. These are wholesome activities, soccer or football or football, whatever. And that's what we're going to wrestle with that. Am I going to deprive my children of these really good activities or am I going to compromise? And we've got to seek God's grace to stand firm, teach them the importance of self-denial and the privilege it is to deny ourselves for the sake of the gospel. Teach them that children their age in other countries are being persecuted for their faith and Little League would be the farthest thing in the world from their minds. And then the third part is that we don't have unnecessary thoughts and conversations about our work and recreation. This doesn't mean that we only talk about the Bible, our theology, or Christian experience on the Lord's Day. No, we're, we're people. And we have interrelated lives. We want to know about one another and what's going on. We pray for one another. But it's the unnecessary things about work or uh, about recreation or whatever. We want to train ourselves, keep bringing our mind, and we want to help one another bring our minds back to the things of the Lord. So these are the conditions that are laid down for us here, summarized well in 
uh, larger catechism. One nineteen. What are the sins forbidden in the fourth commandment? The sins forbidden in the fourth commandment are all omission of the duties required, all careless and negligent and unprofitable performing of them, and being weary of them, all profaning the day by idleness and doing that which is in itself sinful, and by all needless works, words, and thoughts about our worldly employments and recreations. But why? Why does God do this? To free us for the pleasures of the day, as they're laid out then for us in chapter 21 of the Confession. The Sabbath is then kept holy unto the Lord when men, after due preparing of their hearts and ordering of their common affairs beforehand, do not only observe a holy rest all the day from their own works, words, thoughts, about their worldly employments and recreations, but also taken up the whole time in the public and private exercises of his worship and in the duties of necessity and mercy. So by the way, this doesn't say a nap is wrong. It just needs to be a nap that's under the purpose of helping you to be refreshed, to serve the Lord, to come back to evening worship, not fall asleep. And so this is what God sets before us uh, as the means of these great blessings, to delight in him, to have spiritual strength and victory, and to enjoy who and what we are in Christ Jesus. Now, invariably, when we do this, the response in the first place is, but I can't do those things. I can't keep the Sabbath like that. Hence, I don't try. And my response is, oh, that is very interesting. Well, which of the commandments do you keep in the way they're spelled out in Scripture? No. I don't keep any of the commandments. The Word of God searches us. It, it searches our thoughts, our words, our motives, not just our actions. But that's the purpose of the law, right? What does it do? It drives us back into the arms of Christ. And so the very fact that we wrestle with the Sabbath, yes, we're to mourn that, but then we're to flee to Christ. Flee to Christ for, for, for the forgiveness of sins, but also we flee to Christ because in the resurrected power of Christ is the grace to grow in this practice. So the very first thing the Sabbath teaches us, time after time, day after day, rest, rest in Christ Jesus, in him alone. And then delight in the privileges of this day. Perhaps some of you will need to examine yourselves and look at your practice. Perhaps heads of households need to repent and sit down with families and say, you know, I, we've, I've been negligent here. We need to we need to seek the Lord. You children need to understand this because you get upset with your parents when they're strict with you about this. And I hope you have a better understanding today that the Sabbath is a gift of God for you to help you to grow up to be strong young men and young women. And then let us not go about the Sabbath formalistically either. The danger is that, yes, we have all the right views, and we go through it painting by numbers. And our hearts are disengaged. And the very purpose of the Sabbath, then, is lost. Let us begin the day seeking the promises of God. Let us seek grace from him to delight in him, to delight in his day, and to keep it in our hearts, and to meet with him in our worship, as we're going to continue to do now at the Lord's table. Let us pray. 
Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.